We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. The Bible is open to Matthew 13, and I want to, I'd like for you to note with me verses 45 and 46, the parable of the great pearl, the goodly pearl, the pearl of great price. I'd like to bring you a message on that parable today. Uh, in, in recent weeks, I brought you several messages on typology. I've tried to point out uh, some, some gospel lessons that we can learn from Old Testament types that are set forth, I believe, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. All scripture is given by inspiration. One of the reasons we believe this Bible to be God's book is because of typology. It could not have been an accident. It could not have come that way. There's too much unity. It dovetails together too precisely and correctly for it to have been an accident that the Bible was written. Uh, and all the more a miracle when you consider the fact that it was written over a period of 1,500 years and many, many authors, not one author, but many authors wrote it, and yet all of them wrote about Jesus. All of them dealt with the gospel. It's an astounding thing, the unity of the Word of God, the precision of the Word of God. Somebody said, well, there are a lot of contra- no, no contradictions. I have never discovered in all the years of my preaching and my Bible study what I thought to be one single contradiction in the Bible. Now, I've read about the contradictions, but I never found one. I've read about the mistakes and heard people talk about the mistakes in the Bible, but I've never found one. Isn't that rather strange? You'd think after 34 years, I'd stumble over the mistakes and contradictions of the Bible. But the fact is, there aren't any. The Bible is the only perfect book in the world without one flaw, without one blemish. Oh, but preacher, there, no, no, without one flaw, without one blemish, without one contradiction, without one mistake, the Bible is that. And when I can turn to the Old Testament and find a type and preach on a type, or when I can take these parables in Matthew 13 and read from them the gospel, then I must conclude that there was a greater mind behind it than the mind of Matthew who wrote the gospel or the mind of Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. There was a greater mind behind it than they. And the mind behind it, of course, is the omniscient mind of Almighty God, whom I believe wrote the Bible and gave it to us exactly as we have it. In our Sunday school lesson today, I I tried to emphasize to my class uh, when Isaiah, the son of Amos, said, you go back and tell Hezekiah, thus saith the Lord God. I try to emphasize that. Thus saith the Lord God. Now Isaiah gave a report to King Hezekiah that he could bank on and rely upon. He could count on that being the word of God. Now in a real sense, and I think in a sense equal to the authority of Isaiah, you and I can take this Bible and everything we read in this Bible, every single pronouncement in this Bible, And we can give to it the same authority. And we can stand by it with the same dogmatism. We can rely upon it with the same confidence and the same faith that Hezekiah could rely upon the testimony of Isaiah when he said, thus saith the Lord God. The Bible to me is an authoritative book. 
Whatever the Bible says, let every man be a liar and God's word be true. I accept the Bible authoritatively, verbally inspired of God, breathed by the Holy Spirit, written by holy men of old, as the Spirit of God moved upon them right in the years that have gone past. Now, in Matthew 13, there are seven parables. Our people at Tabernacle, the most of you that have been here a long time, we have new people coming into our church constantly, as you well know, uh, know that a few years ago, I brought sermons, seven of them, on seven Sunday mornings, on these seven parables, one parable at a time. And I've used them several times, maybe at prayer meeting one, uh, in a series I preached from them. But several times in the years that have gone past, I preached on these parables. And the most of you are familiar with these seven parables. Seven in Bible numerology is a number of perfection and completeness. Seven days in the cycle of a week. Uh, seven days in the cycle of this earth. Seven days. Uh, the seventh day is the day of rest. And so on. The eighth day, a new, uh, uh, the uh, number of a new beginning, of another cycle of seven. And on down the line. Seven finds its way uh, into the Bible in many places. Uh, unique places. Uh, in, in human life, seven is made. Uh, pronounced and uh, predominant. Uh, in your physical body, the constitution of your body. Uh, the seven, the number seven, uh, comes out time and time again in the human body. Seven is a good number. Now, in these seven parables, we find the whole course of the, of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Where, in other words, we find the whole history and the characteristics in its entirety of the church age in which you and I now live. In these seven parables. Now, the holy men of old, the wise men of the Bible, and the righteous men of the Bible, the prophets of the Bible, we're told in the same chapter, desired to look into these days and were not permitted to do so. Now, Isaiah, who wrote our Sunday school lesson today, 750 years before the Lord was born, Isaiah saw the humiliation of Jesus, Isaiah 53. He also saw the glory and the exaltation of the son of Jacob in many places in Isaiah's prophecy. I, uh, Isaiah highly extols and highly exalts the Messiah. But one thing Isaiah, one of the major prophets of the Bible, never saw. And the thing that Isaiah never had revealed to him is the dispensation of the church. When Isaiah looked down through the future as a prophet of God, he saw a mountaintop. This mountaintop is the humiliation of Jesus, the suffering and death of our Lord. This mountaintop is the glorification of our Lord when he sits upon the throne of his father David. Now, the time element between these two great mountaintops, Isaiah did not know. In fact, the Lord reminds us in Matthew 13 that the prophets and the righteous men of old desired to look into these things and were not allowed to do so. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven were hidden from the Old Testament prophets. Now, I said that to say this to you. As far as God is concerned, all of it was evident, all of it was seen, and all of it was planned from the foundation of the world. I'm as confident as I am of anything that when God draped out the sun by day and the lesser light by night and from the stars from his fingertips, he knew 
that there'd be a church dispensation. He knew that Israel would not recognize their Messiah, but instead would crucify the Prince of Glory. And when it actually happened that Israel crucified the Prince of Glory, I don't think God was su surprised at all. I think God knew that Israel would so treat the promised Messiah. And he also knew that when Israel rejected the Savior, that he would call out from among the Gentiles a bride for his namesake. Now the prophets didn't know that. They some wrote about it. There's some typology related to the bride. Genesis 24, for example. Rebecca. And other instances where the bride is alluded to in the Old Testament. But the prophets who wrote that really didn't understand what they were writing. Now we look back and we know well what they wrote. Because they wrote in typology about the day in which you and I live. But they really didn't understand that day. But God planned it from the foundation of the world. The church, the body of Christ, is not an afterthought. Nor a salvage program. But as far as I'm concerned, the church, the body of Christ, is God's eternal plan and purpose for the Gentile people from the foundation of the world God planned it. And in the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, by the way, but one body in Christ. Now, these seven parables in Matthew 13 have to do with the church dispensation. Now, that's a very interesting thing, a very important thing. And you're wise if you'll study these parables in relation to the church age and the church dispensation. They begin with the parable of the sower. And the sower is Jesus, no doubt about that. Then they continue with the parable of the tears among the wheat. Now here in the second parable, the Lord said that he that sowed the tears was the wicked one, the devil. Uh, the devil came while men slept the devil came and sowed tears among the wheat. And they both sprang up together. And the servant said, now, master, would you allow us to go? And we'll root out the tears. But the householder said, no, don't do that. Lest in rooting out the tears, you disturb the wheat. Let them both go together until the time of the harvest. And then I'll say to my reapers, in the time of the harvest, gather first the tears together and bind them and bundle them for the burning. Now, I don't know what you're thinking, but as far as I'm concerned, that's the ecumenical church. That's the world church. That's the church of the Antichrist that's being built and, and brought together so rapidly until our heads swim sometimes. It's the church that's going to be dominated by the beast and the false prophet in the tribulation. It's a church without redeemed people. It's a church without the Holy Spirit. It's a church without the gospel, the ecumenical church. The world church is a church of apostasy, you see. And as far as I'm concerned, it's composed of tears bound together, bundled together, and they're bundled for the burning for the judgment of God. And one of these days, the world church is going to receive the fire of the judgment of God upon it. Then you have the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed, the least of all the parables. At least of all the seeds, rather. But when it's grown, it becomes the greatest of all the herbs. Now, God planned that the church be that. Uh, started small, very insignificantly. But when it's grown, it became the greatest of all the herbs. But there's a great crossing of the species in parable number three. 
This herb becometh a tree, we're told. So that the birds of the air lodge in the branches. The fowls lodge in the branches thereof. That God did not plan. That was not God's purpose. It's never God's purpose to cross the species. An herb is an herb. A tree is a tree. They're different. Basically different. An herb will always be an herb. A tree shall never be an herb. But we find the mustard seed becoming a great tree. And I'm afraid that's organized religion worldwide in its dominance, greatly powerful in its hierarchy, domineering in its spirit, a world church so massive, so large, until there's no sanctification involved. There can be no discipline in that church. There can be no correcting of those that crept in unawares, bringing their damnable doctrine. Now, I believe the church ought to be kept as clean as can be. At our best, we're not going to be too clean, that's for sure. But the moment we let the standards down and open the gate, so to speak, the floodgate of worldliness and carnality will invade the church, and that's exactly where we find ourselves in this day, in organized religion. Why, there are institutions that were founded by Baptist people two or three hundred years ago, Today, in the hands of the liberals and the modernists entirely. And there's not a thing in the world that churches can do about it. Not a thing. But take it. Take it. I went in a restaurant uh, up at Traveler's Rest a few weeks ago. Uh, I was headed out of Greenville to go preach somewhere, and I stopped to get a meal. And while I was eating my meal, two of these things came in. Came in blessed in, dressed in blue jeans with hair down over the collars. And I couldn't tell uh, the man from the woman from the back. I mean, look at either one. You wouldn't know which was which. That's an abomination to God for a man to dress that way. A man is always to appear to be as a, a man. And a woman is always to appear to be as a woman. But they came in. Just the two of them. Barefooted. Uh, dirty. And they sat out, and on the back of their uh, blue jeans was Furman, F-U-R-M-A-N. And I wanted to get up and run out. I'm a graduate of Furman University. I hang my head in shame that they allow those kind of things to walk on the campus of Furman University. If I was president of the school, there'd be some haircuts around there. If I was president of the school, there'd be some white shirts put on and some neckties and some shoes would be purchased and to go on some dirty, ugly feet. Amen. You're welcome. Amen. You say, well, you can't do that in this day. This generation won't let you do that in this day. Brother, I'm doing it when I'm around. And they're going to do it at Tabernacle. We're not going to allow it at Tabernacle. Amen, Amen brother. Boy, come to school to Tabernacle tomorrow with a dirty pair of blue jeans on, he goes home. Amen. And a girl come to school tomorrow with a pair of blue jeans on, she goes home. We don't allow it. You say, you're a fanatical. I've been called worse than that. You're charitable to me. <laughs> but that's where I stand. But nothing you can do about it because the hierarchy now is so massive until the fowls of the ear come large in the branches thereof. Now, we need to keep our church as clean and our institution as clean as we can. At the best, it's not going to be perfect. But we're not going to let the standards down. 
There's certain uh, modes of conduct. There's certain standards of ethics. There's certain rules that we must hold uh, in our church. There's certain things that, that are off limits. You say, well, Brother Harold, you ought to be broad-minded and let your people do as they, meet, as they mean. Well, you can. There's always a way to get out of tabernacle. You don't have to come to our church. So just move your letter to where they don't talk like I don't and preach like I preach. But I'm not going to tickle your ears. If you think the preacher is going to change, you ought to have given that up a long time ago. You know I'm not going to change. No, I'm too far down the road to change, brother. I, I'm not about to tickle your ears. I'm, I'm not about to compromise with you. I'm not going to put my stamp of approval on your wicked conduct. I'm not going to do it. I'll reprove you and rebuke you and preach the whole counsel of God from this pulpit regardless. As long as I'm pastor of this church, I'm going to do it. So you won't be popular. Well, I, didn't, I wasn't called to be popular. I was called to be faithful. Amen. Now the fourth parable is a woman taking leaven and hiding that leaven in three measures of meal. There's your apostasy and your corrupt uh, influence of liberal theology. Now some naive people have the leaven to be in that parable the gospel. And they say that finally the gospel will permeate all society and we have a converted world, a perfect world. That's not what the leaven is. The leaven is not the gospel. The leaven is evil. The leaven is apostasy. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and of the Pharisees. Leaven in the Bible is never spoken of in a good use. The parable of the unleavened bread in the Old Testament speaks of evil being put out of the houses of the people of Israel. And to make the leaven in this parable mean the gospel is as strange as it can be. If you make it mean the gospel in the fourth parable, then it's the only place in the Bible that leaven is spoken of in a complimentary fashion. And that'd be the height of consistency, inconsistency rather. Leaven is evil. And when the evil of apostate religion permeates the meal, then the whole lump becomes corrupt. To tell you the truth, that's why we have the rise of the independent movement. Among Baptists in our, in our day, when I was a young man, there was no such thing as an independent Baptist church. But they're, they're growing now so rapidly until we can hardly keep up with them. We have 26 independent Baptist churches in Greenville County. And all over the state of South Carolina, they're multiplying. And the reason is because they want to separate from corruption and apostasy and modernism and liberalism. That's why I'm an independent. Only reason I'm an independent. I'm just not going to put my approval upon a professor or a preacher or a teacher who doesn't believe the Bible. Amen. Amen. And then parable number five is the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. In parable number two, we're told the field is the world. The treasure hid in the world is Israel, the people of God, God's earthly people, God's covenant people. The treasure hidden in the field. Now it says a man, when he found it, Sold all that he had and bought the field. Bought the world. That's what Jesus did in his own redemption upon the cross. Has it ever occurred to you that when Jesus comes a second time, that not only is my mortal body to become glorified and the curse of sin lifted from my mortal body, but the curse of sin will also be lifted from the earth when Jesus comes. And this earth planet will blossom like the Garden of Eden. 
Amen. Think of that. When Jesus comes, this earth planet will be like the Garden of Eden. Uh, it now groans and travails, awaiting its redemption. The earth planet is purchased by the blood of Christ and the curse of sin that's now upon the earth planet will be removed when Jesus comes the second time. Now I come to the sixth parable I want to speak to you from today. The sixth parable I read, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the earthly dominion of God. The kingdom of heaven and the organized church is synonymous. Note I said the organized church, not the body of Christ. Within the organized church, you have the body of Christ, the born again. And somebody said, well, Brother Harold, uh, only Baptist people. No, no, there are Methodists who are saved. And there are Pentecostal people who are saved. No doubt in my mind about it. And if they are truly born again, whether they're Baptist or not, they're in the body of Christ. Now, I'm a Baptist, and I recommend you be a Baptist. And I'll make a Baptist out of you if I can. And I'll make an independent Baptist out of you if I can. But if you just won't be a Baptist, you could go to heaven being a Methodist. I would not recommend it, but you could go to heaven being a Methodist. Now, every man that's born again is in the body of Christ. Every man. White or black, rich or poor, Baptist or Methodist. If he's born again, he's in the body of Christ. That's my position. I've always held that. Now, the organized church has in it the body of Christ and the foolish virgins too. The wheat and the tears. The saved and the unsaved in the organized church. I couldn't stretch my imagination far enough to, uh, to convince me that all the members of Tabernacle are born again. I wished it was so. But I know well, and you know well also, that we have names upon our church roll of folk who just aren't saved. I, I, wish, I, I regret that to say that, but it's just a fact. And not only is it a fact to Tabernacle, but it's a fact in every other Baptist church in this county. If you left Tabernacle to find a perfect church, you'd never find it. You'll find somebody on the rolls of any Baptist church that's tears of foolish virgins among the wise. Now, the kingdom of heaven is that earthly dominion consisting both of saved and unsaved. Wise and foolish virgins, you see. Tears and wheat. You couldn't, by any stretch of imagination, call the tears of the foolish virgins saved people. The foolish virgins were virgins, but they lacked the one distinguishing factor that made them saints, and that was the oil. It matters not to me how much religion you may have outwardly. If you have not the oil of the Spirit of God inwardly, you're none of God's. Is that clear? A lot of people have religion. I mean, abounding religion who don't have the indwelling Spirit. And if you have not the indwelling Spirit, then you're not God's child. Cannot be without the indwelling Spirit. And the oil is a type and symbol of the indwelling Spirit. Now, the kingdom of heaven, look at verse 45 again, is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Here's a merchant man on a mission, and he's seeking on that mission goodly pearls. Just one thing, goodly pearls. Everywhere he goes, he's seeking goodly pearls. And he finds goodly pearls. He found you when you were redeemed by the grace of God. He found you. But on top of that, and over and above that, it says in verse 46, who when he found one pearl 
of great price. Now that one pearl of great price is the church. The body of Christ, the born again, not the visible church, but the born again body of Christ is the pearl of great price that the merchant man is seeking. Now in the process of seeking that one perfect unit, the church, that one perfect body, the church, he finds many goodly pearls. And when he finds a goodly pearl, that pearl, piece by piece, stone by stone, is put into the body of Christ. We become fitly framed together. Many goodly pearls forming the pearl of great price that the merchant man is seeking for. And as he seeks out the pearls, he finds many goodly pearls. And through the miracle of the new birth, you're baptized of the Spirit into that pearl of great price that the merchant man is seeking. And that pearl of great price is the church of God, the body of Christ. Now note, it says that when he found this pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now the other man, in parable number five, bought the field, the world. And many Bible teachers and, and students believe that Israel will inherit the new earth in eternity. John saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from God out of heaven and redeemed Israel will occupy the new earth. We're told in Revelation 21, 22, that the kings of the earth bring that glory into the holy city, the new Jerusalem. The new earth is to be populated throughout eternity by Israel, an earthly people. So when Jesus died upon the cross, he redeemed the earth planet for Israel, a covenant people. But when he found the pearl of great price, he redeemed the church, the pearl of great price, at great cost, you see. When he found this pearl, he sold all that he had and bought the pearl of great price. Now when you make the pearl of great price in this lesson mean the Lord Jesus. And I have heard of men who say that the pearl is the Lord Jesus. And that the man is the seeking sinner. And that the man that finds Jesus sells all that he has and gives everything that he has to the Lord in order that he might have eternal life. But that's not the way people get saved. People get saved by faith without worth, price, or merit. A sinner doesn't sell everything that he has in order to become converted. He's found by a seeking Savior. And when he's converted, he's converted without money, without price, and without worth, you see. All by the grace of God. Now the man, the merchant man, is Jesus. The pearl of great price is the body of Christ. The goodly pearls are the individual believers, one by one, found and fitted together, framed together into the body that we call the church of the living God. Now, I wonder why Jesus, when he gave this parable, elected to use a pearl as an illustration. I wonder why he didn't say a merchant man seeking goodly diamonds, who when he found one great diamond, uh, sold all that he had and purchased it. I wonder why he didn't use a sapphire or some other precious stone worth great wealth. I wonder why he didn't. Why did the Lord use the analogy of a pearl? Now that's very significant. A pearl only could teach the lesson that Jesus is trying to set forth. And I want to give you that lesson in the next moment or two. I'd have you note, first of all, the unity of the pearl.
I marvel at that. A pearl is a unit. Now, if you had a diamond, if I had a diamond, if I was a diamond smith, I could put that diamond on an anvil and strike it with a hammer, and I have for myself two diamonds. And then if I could polish those stones, I could polish those two diamonds and probably get far more money for the two diamonds than I could get for the one. But if I had a good pearl and I laid that pearl upon the anvil and I struck it with a hammer, I'd have nothing. You see that? You'd have a worthless mess if you broke the pearl, you would destroy it by breaking it. The unity of the pearl I marvel at that. The unity of the body of Christ is a reality that the devil has been trying to destroy ever since God planned a Gentile body, a Gentile church. But there's no division in the church. Oh, but preacher, how can you see that when they're Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian? Oh, yes, in the visible church, there is division and factions and groups. But in the body of Christ, there is no division. Not one bit. And has never been. Never been. If you are born again by that miracle, you're put into the body of Christ. Nothing can take you out of it. Nothing can divide you. Nothing can offend you. You can never die. You'll be part of that body for time and eternity. The unity of that body cannot be destroyed. Suppose the church had one born-again young man, got into its group, and then 15 years down the road, the old devil snatched him, pulled him out, threw him into the, into the lake of fire and hell. And throughout all eternity, me and you would sing, Hosanna, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And there'd be one convert screaming down in hell, saying, oh, I wish I could have made it, but I lost my salvation. You'd have a broken body, a destroyed pearl. And when you destroy a pearl, you destroy its value and you have nothing. When you break the church, if it could be broken, you have nothing. You have defeat for the Savior. The fact that it's a unit gives testimony to the fact that greater is he that is with us than he that is in the world. Then I want you to know also that the pearl is the product of a living creature. Now that's not so of a diamond or a sapphire or any other costly gem. But the pearl is the product of a living organism. Way down in the murky deep of the water, there is that little uh, animal, little mantle, little amoeba of some kind. And that little animal has the ability to produce that pearl. They tell me that it's produced by a grain of sand that gets between the fleshly tissues of the little animal, causing it great pain. And God endows that little fish the ability to exert a secretion around that uh, uh, grain of sand to relieve the agony and the suffering. And after a while, it begins to hurt and agonize, and he'll secrete a little bit more until after a while, in his little body, it's got a priceless gem that's been formed by years of labor and work. And we get that little animal off the bottom of the murky deep and salvage out of it the pearl of great price and great worth. Now I want to say to you that goodly pearls that the merchant man is seeking, and that's me and you, are formed not by the work of man, nor by the worth of man, 
but formed by the agony and the suffering of Jesus Christ, God's Son upon Calvary's brow, were born of his anguish and born of his suffering upon the cross. Then I want you to know, too, that the pearl is the product of suffering. It doesn't come any other way. You don't go to the, to the factory and produce a pearl. It takes time to produce a pearl. It takes time, it takes suffering to produce a pearl. Much suffering to produce a pearl. You don't hurry the process on. Suppose you lifted the little uh, fish out of the water and killed it and opened its body and on the inside you saw that the pearl had begun but it was so minute until it was microscopic. You'd throw it aside, it'd be worthless, you see. You have to wait and wait and wait. And in due time, without the help of human ingenuity, without the help of a human hand, that little animal will deliver to you a pearl of great price. And I find that in being born again by God's Spirit, goodly pearls saved in God's grace, you don't hurry the process up. Somebody said, well, we just got to have some converts. We just got to have some converts, and I'm not being sarcastic. We've just got to have some converts. I heard a pastor one time say with my own ears, he said, if somebody doesn't walk the aisle every time I preach, I'm dead. And I quote him verbatim. Well, you're not going to hurry the process up. It's going to take suffering and waiting and patience to produce the pearl. And if you hurry it up, you're going to destroy that which you want. Old Dr. Bob Jones used to say, I don't want you to destroy my vineyards. He said, I don't care how much fruit you reap out of my vineyards, but don't go and tear my vines down. And I knew what old Dr. Bob Jones was talking about. Uh, he made those statements back yonder when the, when the ecumenists first began to compromise. And they had to have a certain number of decisions, you see, to bolster up their reputation as great evangelists. And sometimes they'd tear down the church and tear up evangelism and destroy evangelism in order to get a desired result. That's what Dr. Jones says. He said, you let my vines alone. My fruit will come in due season if you'll not destroy my vines. Now, the same thing is so with the church. The church will produce goodly pearls if left alone. But if you try to hasten it and promote it and take the situation in your own hands and become the producer, you're going not only to destroy the pearl, but you're going to destroy the mother that brings the pearl into the world, you see. And then number four, the pearl is formed slowly. God is not in a hurry in producing that little pearl. Slowly, yet surely, in the body of that little uh, sea animal, that pearl is being formed slowly. I don't know how long it takes. Some of you might be familiar with it to the degree that you could tell me. But I would imagine it would take several years, maybe, to produce a pearl of, of, of any size and of any great value. And that's a slow process. But that little, pro that little animal is producing nonetheless. And if left alone, in due time, it'll produce that priceless pearl. And then I remind you, too, that uh, the pearl is not seen by human eyes. God works beyond the reach of the human eye and beyond the reach of the human hand, and beyond the comprehension of the human mind. Did you get what I said? I don't know, I think you people observe like I observe. Most of us observe things round about us and how things happen and how God does things. 
But I have never gotten over. I, I never cease to marvel at how God does things. Just when I think I've learned, I have to unlearn. Just when I think to the point I've gotten where I can explain God's doings, God will do something to me, put me right back where I started, and I say, oh, Lord, I just can't follow you. You're too great for me. I, I can't handle this situation. You're too much for me. I don't understand to save my life how God does things. I don't. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm sincere. I don't understand how God does things. I don't understand how God gets some people saved. It's a marvel how the Lord brings sometimes the most unsuspecting one to their knees and to the altar. Sometimes the one that boasted, I'll not be a Baptist, I'll not join Tabernacle Baptist Church, are the very ones that do become a Baptist and do join Tabernacle Baptist Church. And I can't do it to save my life. If I could duplicate it, brother, we'd have to burst the walls out of this building. I'd, I'd have the thing packed and jammed more than it is. If I, could, I can't do it. I never have been able to do it. Somebody said the other day, preacher, you ought to write a book. The world's full of books. But somebody said, you ought to write a book. I said, that right. What on? They said, you ought to write a book on how to build a church. I said, I would if I knew how. I mean, how to, I can write the book, but how to build a church, I don't know how to build a church. Yeah, I'm honest with you. I'm not being smart. If somebody were to come to me and say, tell me how I can build another Tabernacle Baptist Church, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think there's anybody in the world that knows how to build another Tabernacle Baptist Church. If somebody knew how to do it, there'd be a dozen of them in Greenville and two dozen in South Carolina. But I don't know how. And you don't know how. I don't just admit it. This is God's doings, you see. God working. And God doesn't he need you looking over his shoulder. And he doesn't need your hand. It's too weak. He doesn't need your mind. It's not great enough. God's going to perform his miracles without the help of human hands and a human mind. Yes. This great miracle of the pearl is produced without human eye ever looking at it. And the moment you open that little oyster or that little fish up to see, it, see the process going on, you destroy it. You say, well, I've got to see how that's done. Okay, you destroy it in the process. Best thing to do is let it alone. Let God do it. And then you can enjoy the pearl. And a lot of people are trying to do that. They're trying to do this or the other in the church. Uh, they've got to have numbers. We've gone crazy over numbers. I made that statement the other day in the Southwide Baptist Fellowship in Chattanooga. I don't know how it's set with the preachers, but I, I had it on my soul. I had to unload it. I felt God wanted me to say it. We've gone wild on numbers. In other words, we've, we've opened up. God's mechanism and we are probing into God's doings and trying to understand it and trying to write it down so that everyone else can do it. But God's not going to let you do that. By the time you think you've learned one thing, God will break out over here and you'll find out you didn't know thought, uh, near as much as you thought you did. And by the time you've gotten to the place where you learn how to be a pastor, something will happen and you wonder if you do know how to be a pastor. You get to the point where you learn how to preach, something will happen, and you wonder if you do know how to preach. You get to the point where you think you know how to win souls, something will happen, and you wonder if you do know how to win souls. Now, God's not going to share his glory with anybody. Then I want you to note also that this pearl is of value and beauty. Now, down there in the murky deep, dark waters, it's not of beauty. Nobody can see it. 
It's not of value because it's hidden in the miry clay. But when you find the little animal and lift it up out of the murky deep and open up its little body, on the inside is a pearl of great price and great value. Now, that's what God did to me and you. He found me and you when we were, when we were sinking into the miry clays of sin, way down in the murky deep. And in that position, nobody could see any glory, any good in you or me or any worth in you or me. But with a great arm of mercy and grace, he reached down and lifted us out of the miry clay and put us on a solid rock. And it long until you become a thing of beauty and preciousness in the eyes of God. Because now the pearl uh, is seen and can be enjoyed by the eye. And then finally, the pearl is a thing exalted high, highly exalted. Now, you don't get a pearl out of the murky deep to carry in your pocket. You don't get a pearl out of the dark waters to put in your pocketbook or to lay on your mantelpiece or put in your, under your pillow or in your treasure chest at home. But you get that pearl to adorn a beautiful lady's neck. Or you get that pearl to adorn a beautiful crown of a queen or princess. In other words, that pearl was found and lifted out of the deep, not for you to carry in your pocket, but to be highly exalted on the brow of some important person through the world. Or to be worn in the finger about the neck of a lovely woman. That's the only reason you salvaged the pearl. Now I want to say to you that though I came from the murky deep and the miry deep of sin, that I've been lifted out and put upon a solid rock. And my exaltation is not yet realized. When God finishes me and finishes you, and we come off God's assembly line, polished and adorned and placed, we're going to be highly exalted in heaven, lifted from the deep of the miry clay to a highly exalted place in heaven you and I one day shall enjoy. And we're going to be to the glory of King Jesus in heaven. Every goodly pearl formed together into that one pearl of great price will be to the glory of King Jesus someday in heaven. I marvel at that. That he would love me so unlovely, so unworthy, so incapable, so ignorant, so weak, so frail, that he would love me enough to lift me up and polish me up Lift me up, fix me up, put me up there for glory in the glory of Jesus. And yet that's exactly the process that's going on in God's great economy with every one of us that are saved in the grace of God. Now that's the pearl. The merchant man is Jesus. He's going about in the earth seeking goodly pearls. And when he found you, he saved you. And then he puts you into that pearl of great price, the church, for which he sold everything and bought in his own precious blood. Aren't you glad that he found you when you were lost? Let's bow our heads in prayer, every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we come to thank you today for the lessons we learned from the pearl. We thank you that Jesus found us when we were lost, down in the murky deep of this world with its sin, held a captive, a victim to sin and the powers of the devil. But he reached down with a mighty arm, 
brought us out of darkness to light, from the place of deep desolation to a highly exalted place as a son. A great transformation has taken place. He put us into a body that can never be destroyed, can never be broken. Not a single part will ever be lost, but all of it safely shall arrive at destination some golden daybreak. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.